Well, that was a, a great text we just read from Romans 8. Now, you can stay right there. But before anyone looks ahead at what comes next, I want to ask you a simple question. What do you suppose Paul would say next after that? Paul's just written this incredible song of praise about how God did not spare even his own son and how nothing will ever separate us from God's love in Christ. So after writing something like that, what do you think you would want to say next? Now, whatever you might want to say next or whatever you might expect Paul to say next, I am confident that it is not actually what Paul says. Let's pick up in Romans 8, verse 38, and I want to read straight through into chapter 9, assuming there's no chapter break, because the chapter breaks are not original. So let's just try to, try to sense this, okay? Romans 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You see, did you expect that? after the highest point in Romans so far, which is certainly one of the high points of the whole Bible. Paul says again and again, I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying to you about this. That my heart is always full of anguish and pain. How could that be? Why would that be? Now, The initial answer to that comes in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, the very next verse. When he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Right. It is almost like Paul, after leading us to the heights of highest praise, suddenly remembers the one thing that always causes him deep, deep pain. What is it? It is the current state of his fellow Jews. While Paul and the church are enjoying God's gifts, the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the joys of being forgiven through Jesus, the vast majority of the Jewish people, Jesus' own people, Paul's own people, are cut off from all of the blessings, separated from them, and in outright rebellion against their own Messiah, Jesus. See, what we learn as soon as you come in to Romans 9 is that no matter where Paul goes, no matter what fruit he reaps among the Gentiles, no matter how many new churches he plants all over the Roman world, his Jewish brothers and sisters are never far from his mind. And whenever he thinks about them, about their current condition, or their future destiny, it causes him constant sorrow and unceasing pain, a pain that he carries in his heart with him wherever he goes. 
I hope that what I just shared, that little bit about Paul's deep anguish as he thinks about his Jewish friends, has, I hope that's already helped us to see one of the main things I want to see today. And that is that this next part of Romans, Romans 9 all the way through chapter 11, is not a bunch of academic theory or abstract theology. Okay. If you've ever read Romans 9 through 11, or especially Romans 9, or ever discussed these chapters together before today, you, you, you'll know that these chapters plunge us into the deep things of God. But as we've already seen today, these chapters are not academic theory to Paul. They are very practical and they are deeply personal. But at the same time, there's also little doubt that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the most debated chapters in the entire New Testament. I, I'm pretty sure of that. Most difficult and most debated chapters in the New Testament. Why is that? We're going to be in them for probably like two months. So why, why are they so difficult and so debated? Okay, one reason is unavoidable. Okay? And it is simply that Paul takes us in these chapters on the deepest dive into, in the whole Bible into the mind of God okay? and the plan of God. And the deeper we dive into the mind of God, the more we realize how big God is, how small we are, and how little we really know. Okay? So anytime limited human beings like us are trying to make sense of the deep things of God, there will be difficulty and there will be debate along the way. But a second reason that I think these chapters are so debated and so contested is that I think we often get off on the wrong foot when we begin to study them. Okay? Now, this can happen in a few different ways. But here are two, I think, well-traveled paths to ensuring that this study will not be very helpful. Okay? So these are like two paths I do not want to go. Okay? First, we, we could treat these chapters as though what Paul was trying to do in them was to write a systematic theology textbook. What I mean is that if you, just, if you just yank out Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially chapter 9, from the rest of Romans or from the rest of the Bible, and you try to just treat them as, this is, as if this is like an academic paper or a systematic theology textbook, we are not going to get very far. This sort of approach leads to debate, a lot more heat than light, and very little love and worship. Paul was not trying to write a proposal for the next systematic theology for Zondervan or some other big Christian publisher. Now, of course, these chapters are going to show us a ton about God, about God's plan, God's wisdom, God's justice, and much more. But the section is rooted in real life. It was written by a real guy to, real, to a real church about very practical and deeply personal questions and problems. Now, the second way to ensure a less than productive study of these is to get started with the wrong questions. Let me, let me illustrate this a bit, okay? Look at Romans 9, verse 13. Okay, this is a great verse, right? Romans 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, 
Now, do you have questions about that verse? I do. Like, like what would be the questions we might want to ask about a verse like that? What does it mean when God says, I hated Esau? What did God do to Esau? Does God hate the people I'm talking with this week? What is the deal with this idea? Is that a good question? Yes, that is a good question. Is that the first question we should ask when we start discussing these chapters? No, no, all right? Why not? Okay, well, if we simply try to find all of the hardest parts of these chapters and start with all of the hardest questions about all the hardest parts, we will have a very unproductive study. Okay? Studies on these chapters that start there will likely go nowhere. Discussions that start with those questions go nowhere, or at least nowhere good, or nowhere edifying or unifying. Now, again, I'm not saying these kind of questions are bad questions. Far from it. But what I am saying is we can easily get started on the wrong foot by asking good questions at the wrong time. So those are two ways I think we could go that I don't want to go. But what about getting off on the right foot? <clears throat> I think there are three questions we can ask about these chapters that will help us move in a, in a good direction. Okay, this, this study today, I'm going to try to think big picture. Okay? Because this is going to be a long study in this. And like I said, these are the most debated chapters probably in the Bible. So three questions that I think will help us go the right direction. Okay, one, first question is a very simple question. It's the what question. What is Romans 9 through 11 about? Okay. If, and again, I don't know your experience with these chapters, but I've heard lots of people talk about things in these chapters, and I don't know if they know the answer to that question. What is Romans 9 through 11 actually about? I mean, just, just from the first three verses of Romans 9 that we already read, you can take a really good guess. Okay. What is Romans 9 to 11 about? In one word, Romans 9 to 11 is about Israel. As one of my Australian friends, Mike Bird, pointed out in a recent book on Romans, he said Romans 9 is about Israel in the past, Romans 10 is about Israel in the present, and Romans 11, what do you think? It's about Israel in the future. That's very helpful. All in all, though, Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel. Now, to flesh that out just a bit, in Romans 9, Paul looks back to Israel's past. And that's where you'll see stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And then in Romans 10, Paul will look at Israel in his own day, in the present. And about, he needs to think about why is Israel as a whole not getting God's blessing, but instead getting God's judgment today. And then in chapter 11, Paul will put the question out there, has God rejected his people forever? Or put another way, is this the end of Israel's story? Is this the end of the road for Israel? <laughs> what is Romans 9 to 11 about? It is about Israel. It's about what God has done with Israel in the past, what he is doing with Israel in the present, and what he will do with Israel in the future. That is the what question. But I think there's a question that's even more important than the what question, and that is the why question. Why did Paul write Romans 9 through 11? If we can answer that question well, we'll be on the right track in the study. So what do you think? If you've ever read these chapters before, why did Paul 
write them. After all, where else did Paul ever talk about Israel like this in all of his other letters? Where else? The answer is nowhere. In fact, there is nowhere else in the entire New Testament that you will find anything like what you find in Romans 9 through 11. Most important letter he ever wrote in the heart of the letter. Three chapters that are unparalleled in the rest of the New Testament. That raises a question. Why did Paul write Romans 9 through 11? At this point, in this letter, I mean, just consider for a moment. Okay, Look at this. Okay, Consider what it would have been like if these chapters were not here. Okay? So look at Romans 8. And I want to read this time from Romans 8 into Romans 12. Okay? So just imagine Romans 9 through 11 were not there. Romans 8, <laughs> the end. I'm sure neither death nor life, nor anything else, all these things, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then imagine reading right into chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What do you notice about that? Perhaps you notice what I notice, that that would flow a lot better than chapter 8 into chapter 9. But yet that isn't what Paul does. That's not what he writes. He does not go right into chapter 12. He instead writes Romans 9 through 11. And that brings us back to this question, why did Paul write these chapters? And I want to I highlight three reasons that you can look at on your own. Because I'm going to encourage you to read these chapters again and again throughout the next couple of months. Why did Paul write them? Three, three things I want to point out. I'm going to put them in the order of how important I think they are. Number one, Paul writes Romans 9 to 11 to defend his own love for his Jewish friends. I think it is very easy to forget this dimension of Paul's life. Okay, this guy who wrote this letter was a rising star among the Jewish people when he was younger. He had the best training, great pedigree. He knew the scriptures inside and out. <laughs> he was popular, and he was brilliant. But at the very point Paul was rising to prominence, Jesus crashes Paul's party, reveals himself to Paul, shows Paul, you're completely wrong about me. And then not just that, Jesus calls Paul to go out and preach about Jesus for the rest of his life to the Gentiles. There is not much more that you could possibly imagine that would be less likely than that. Okay? So, so just bear with me. Try to think about this if you were simply an observer of this. Okay? Especially if you were a Jewish observer of this. Of this man's life. Okay? What would you think about Paul? <clears throat> this guy takes our Jewish scriptures our Jewish promises, our Jewish blessings, and even supposedly our Jewish Messiah, because that's what he thinks. And what does he do? He just goes out there and gives it all away to the Gentiles. <clears throat> what do you think people would accuse Paul of? This guy doesn't care about his people. 
this guy is a sellout, <coughs> or perhaps worse, this guy is a traitor to his own people. And all you have to do to see that this is what people thought, Jewish people often thought about Paul, you know what you have to do? All you got to do is read the book of Acts and see how most of the Jews responded to Paul, this Gentile lover. So what does Paul do in Romans 9 through 11? He sets the record straight. He writes to defend his continued love for his own people, despite all the work he's doing among the Gentiles. And if you want to remember that in these chapters, all you got to do is look how every chapter begins. Look at Romans 9 at the beginning. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because I could wish I were a curse from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Then look at the beginning of chapter 10. Look how it starts. Brothers, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, for my Jewish brothers and sisters, is that they may be saved. Then look at the beginning of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel, by no means, because I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Woven throughout the entire section is this idea that Paul, even though he's spending all his time among Gentile people, has never forgotten his Jewish friends and family. He loves them, he's always loved them, and he longs for them to know Jesus too. Second, even more important, Paul writes these chapters to answer the question that would have been on everyone's mind in Paul's day that we never think about today. The question about how it is that so many Gentiles and so few Jews believe what Paul's talking about. Let me think about it. Go to church in his day, and you look around, and what scriptures are they reading? The Jewish scriptures, right? That's all they have. They're reading Israel's scriptures. And who's there gathered to worship Jesus? You know, let's say 95% Gentiles and like two Jews. We don't even think about this. But all you got to do is imagine Paul's world. I mean, imagine churches that are almost entirely Gentile. Very few Jews. And then think of what he says at the very beginning of the letter. I want you to go back to the first verses of Romans. I want you to think about what he said in the very first two verses. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> he introduces a letter and he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Remember that, it's a long time ago. In the very first verses of Romans, Paul makes this claim, that the gospel he goes around the world preaching is the very same good news that was promised a long time ago through Israel's prophets in Israel's scriptures. But what's the glaring problem in Paul's day? How about the fact that the vast majority of Jewish people don't believe what Paul says? And not just that, who are pretty much the only people who believe him? Gentile people. And you know what? The same thing is still true today. This hasn't changed. I mean, just consider how many ethnic Jews you know or have ever met who follow Jesus as their Messiah. I've known some. Perhaps we have some here today. And I would praise God for that. But I mean, how many have you ever even met 
there's no doubt that whether we're talking about here in the U.S., around the world, or over in the nation of Israel today, the vast majority of ethnically Jewish people still reject Jesus today. They do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. And the vast majority of people who do accept this are Gentiles. Question, is that a problem? Like, is that a sign that what Paul preached about Jesus isn't actually found in the Old Testament? If all the other Jewish people say it's not there. I mean, lots of you have read the Old Testament. <clears throat> Does the Old Testament ever envision lots and lots of Jews rejecting God's work and lots and lots of Gentiles accepting it? Do you see that in the Old Testament? I have some good news for you. Paul wrote Romans 9 to 11 specifically to answer those questions. This was one of the most obvious, most glaring questions that would have been on everybody's mind in Paul's day that's not on our minds when you look around at the churches. So what does he do? He goes through one Old Testament text after another for three chapters to prove that what he preaches about Jesus is actually there in the text. And not just that, he goes to one Old Testament text after another to show that Israel's widespread rejection and the Gentiles' widespread acceptance of Jesus was talked about in the Old Testament. That's one of the main reasons why, when you read these three chapters, you will see quotation marks all over. Romans 9 through 11. Just look at your Bible. Romans 9 through 11. It's just a couple pages. Now, your Bible may use quotation marks. It may use bold. It may use italics. It may set the lines apart to show you their quotations. <laughs> but however, however it does it, okay? If you just flip through the pages of Romans 9, 10, and 11, what you will notice that there, is that there are Old Testament quotations <clears throat> throughout every part of every chapter. In fact, I counted them up earlier this week. There are something like 26 direct quotations of the Old Testament in just these three chapters. 26 different passages in the Old Testament that Paul quotes in three chapters. That is, that's about one-third of all of Paul's quotations in all of his letters okay, in just these three chapters. Okay, if you didn't catch that, do you know how many letters Paul wrote in the New Testament? He wrote 13 letters. A third of all of the times he quotes the Old Testament are just in these three chapters. Why did Paul write Romans 9 to 11 at this point in the letter? To defend his love for his Jewish people? To answer the question everyone would be asking, like, why is the church the way it is? And third, and most important, Paul writes Romans 9 to 11 to defend the faithfulness of God. And this is ultimately going to be the most important thing for us. The thing that's going to hit home the most in our own lives. For our own faith, our own walk with God. Has God been faithful 
to his promises or not. And I think this is, this is the main connecting point between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Think of how Romans 8 ends. <clears throat> with this incredible promise that there will never be any separation for us from God's love in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Didn't God say very similar things to Israel in the Old Testament? Didn't God make very similar promises to Israel in the Old Testament? What's the answer to that? Yes, he did. And yet, what was happening to the vast majority of Israelites in Paul's day? Most Israelites were cut off from God's blessings. They'd rejected their Messiah. To put it bluntly, most Jewish people in Paul's day and in our day are headed for condemnation. Doesn't that mean that God's promises have failed? Doesn't that mean that God has failed to be faithful to what he said? This is the most important question for us to wrestle with. Why? Why is that so important? I think it's obvious, but, but why? Because if, if God has not been faithful to what he promised in the Old Testament, how can we really be sure that he will be faithful to what he promises in the New Testament? Do you see what I'm saying? If, if God hasn't been faithful to what he promised Israel in the past, you should not trust him to be faithful to you for the future. And so what does Paul set out to do in Romans 9 through 11? More than anything else, he sets out to defend the faithfulness of God. And if you want to see where that is more clearly than anywhere else, I'll just point you to one text, the verse that is the most important verse in all of Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9, verse 6. Romans 9, 6, I think the most important verse in the whole section. Look at the first part, Romans 9, 6, where Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That right there is what Paul's setting out to prove for three chapters. This is what he's trying to do, to defend the faithfulness of God even though the vast majority of Jewish people have rejected the Messiah, and even though the vast majority of Christians are actually Gentiles, this does not mean God's promises have failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? How do we know that? Well, that's what the whole series will be about, on Romans 9 through 11, because that's what these chapters are about. Now, that is big picture. This is a little different than normal, than what we do if you're here for the first time. We're just, next time we're in this text, we'll do what we normally do and start just working through it verse by verse. But I wrestled with this. I talked with Trisha about this last night. Thinking about, like, this is not what I would normally do on, on a Sunday morning to kind of overview something like this. But, but these three chapters are the most debated chapters in the Bible. And a lot of the reason for that is we approach them the wrong way and we don't even think about what they're about or what Paul was trying to do with them. And so we've been thinking big picture. And my hope is that today will be helpful on its own right, but that it'll be fruitful every week for the rest of this study. But I want to leave this morning by touching on one more question about these chapters. We dealt with the what and the why. I want to close by at least considering initially the so what question of Romans 9 to 11. There's a lot of good stuff in these chapters, but so what? Like, what are we supposed to do with it? What are the goals 
What's it supposed, where's it supposed to lead us? I'm just going to point out two things for today. First, this section of scripture is intended to give us greater confidence that we can trust God's promises, not just to other people, but to us. Do you trust what God has promised to you? Do you trust the promise of God that he will give you right standing if you'll just trust his son? Do you trust his promise that he's with you in suffering? Do you trust him when he says he is at work in every circumstance of your life for good? Do you trust him when he says he loves you with a love that will never end? This section of scripture is intended to give us greater confidence that we can trust God's promises because God's been faithful to every promise he's ever made. And then lastly, this section of scripture is intended to cause us all to step back in awe and wonder at God and then to fall down before him and worship. As I mentioned earlier, this is the deepest dive into the mind and plan of God in the Bible. I know already we won't grasp everything, and I won't be able to explain everything that's in these chapters. But I hope we'll grasp this. Our God is big, we are small, and God's grace to us is truly amazing, and it's actually grace. In other words, God didn't owe us anything, not a thing good. As Gentiles, we absolutely were not God's people. And yet, God himself has called us, of all people, into his own family, not at all because he had to, only because he wanted to. That is grace. When we realize there was nothing in me to draw God to me, to woo him. But he came from me because he wanted to. This should cause us to step back in awe and wonder, and then that should cause us to fall down before God and to say something like this. Oh, the depth of... This is the last part of Romans 11, by the way. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's ever been his counselor? Like who's ever told God, you know, this would be a good idea for you to do that. Or who's ever given a gift to God first so that God would have to repay them? What's the answer to all that? No one. Why? Because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all glory forever. Amen. If, if by the end of the study we can only get there, we'll have gotten exactly where Paul wanted us to get. We'll have seen what we were supposed to see. And I just want to commit 
this, to, this whole section, this whole study to the Lord in prayer, asking God to get us there. Let's pray. Father, would you take this, this study today, which, which I hope will bear fruit for weeks to come, and will you bring us all to the, the point where we see you in your glory, where we understand your promises and your faithfulness, and where we want to cry out to you in worship. Lord, I pray that you'll help us, give us discernment, give us joy as we read on our own, as we discuss these things in our community groups, as we just spend time soaking in the depths of your wisdom and power and justice and glory. We thank you for this wonderful opportunity we had today to gather here together as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.